welcome to Turn the Page, the official podcast of the Syosset Public Library. and welcome to Turn the Page. I'm your host today, Jen, and I am joined by a fantastic researcher and writer today who has written a number of really exciting books, but we're here to discuss a particularly exciting and interesting one. Could I ask you to introduce yourself and your book, please? Sure. My name is Julia Bricklin. I'm a nonfiction writer, and my current book is called Red Sapphire, The Woman Who Beat the Blacklist. It is so interesting. And uh, Hannah Weinstein is such an interesting figure. Is it Hannah or Hannah? Uh, it is Hannah. Hannah. Okay, great. Um, and I want to talk about her, but I'm wondering if before we get into the book specifically, if uh, you could talk a little bit about, um, you know, your approach to history, maybe like what draws you to the people that you write about and what drew you to Hannah here? Sure. Well, um, long story short, I come from a family that are huge Robin Hood fans. And I stumbled over Hannah's story when I was researching the very old myth of, you know, 12th, 13th century myth of Robin Hood with the idea of writing a short story, uh, turning turning the old myth on its head. Um, so when I stumbled over Hannah's story about creating the 1950s TV show, I was really intrigued. And typically I will um, stumble over a story when I'm researching something else. And that's exactly what happened here. And I couldn't believe that nobody had written Ms. Weinstein's story, but I, I sort of understand why now. Um, there's a couple of different reasons for it, but I I really wanted my daughter to know this story. It's very important to me that people know they can rebel in ways that aren't necessarily violent and not necessarily blatant. Um, we do what we can in our own sphere of influence. And I think Ms. Weinstein did that to terrific effect. Absolutely. You know, and I think it's a really um, interesting and necessary uh, corollary to like how we talk about McCarthyism and the Red Scare, because those narratives do tend to be very um, pessimistic, <laughs> you know, and not to like, sure. not to suggest that it was not hard for Hannah, but like, you yeah. know, we, we tend to focus, I think, on how it disempowered people and artists and, you know, politicians yeah. and stuff. And it was really cool to read a story about how somebody was able to, you know, act within those strictures like by that were placed on her by the time and still do so much. Sure, sure. Uh, yeah, this um, for readers out there, I won't give away the whole story, but this is a woman who was raising three tiny girls as mostly a single mom in the late 40s and early 1950s. And she saw the writing on the wall with her, no pun intended, with her friends who were being called to various hearings and even doing prison time for taking, um, for, for not being forced to acknowledge their political beliefs. It wasn't relevant. And so she left and she went to Europe and created a television show that caught the attention of a mogul in England 
who bankrolled her and she was able to set up a studio using um, scripts that had been surreptitiously written by blacklisted writers. And what she had done is implemented a very complicated, secretive way of writing and polishing these scripts and then not only um, shooting them with British talent, but paying those writers through a secret route and then of keeping a lid on their identities. So she she took something that was, um, as you said, something that was very, um, she took, there's probably a better word for this, but she took the persecutions of her own government and she was able to provide employment for so many people who had no other means of employment at the time. And she was able to not only financially support them, but she was able to give them hope that they could keep doing their craft until better times. And so I have to really applaud her for working within the confines of this terrible time and being able to give hope to so many. It really is an amazing story that not only was she able to, um, you know, collaborate with other artists who were also blacklisted and get art produced outside the country, but then also like the content of that art, like spoke to the situation, you know, could you yes. talk a little bit about like the shows? Yes, that, she that is, and, yeah, what she was that doing. That is the whole other layer to it, isn't it? Is <laughs> the content of these TV shows, the adventures of Robin Hood, Sir Lancelot, the Buccaneers, she and her writers were able to explore and convey all these themes of persecution, of fascism, of um, dark money even. And, you know, this is going back to the 1950s, you know, dark money supporting um, political efforts. Uh, She was able to do this in the episodes of her show. And she really even before her time, touched on themes of misogyny and inheritance patterns, um, coverture, uh, women's rights, um, the rights of the underclass, the rights of labor. All of these themes are so entertainingly um, addressed in, in hundreds of episodes. And you know, as you watch these episodes today, you don't even realize that's what's happening. But of course, these writers and Hannah are able to express these themes in a in a very entertaining way. It's 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 truly remarkable what she was able to accomplish. It is remarkable. Um, and you know what is so interesting to me too is that um you know, the shows are very history oriented, you know, they take place in other time periods, like um, the, the two, at least medieval shows, right? So with right, Lancelot right. And with Robin Hood. And do you think she chose history because like, that's a, um, a how do I put it, like a sneaky way to address uh, issues in the present without like, letting people know you're talking about the present. Oh, I definitely (laughs) think so. I mean, let's be honest. She wasn't going to be able to produce um, long-running series based on current events of the time. Um, But also, I think that um, there's a couple of things. There's public domain. These stories were and had been in the public domain for quite some time. 
by the time she started um, mining them for story ideas. But yeah, I think that um, as most writers then knew, as they do now, history repeats itself. Um, the same themes keep, you know, cycling through the ages. And I think, too, being in England, what she was able to do is is um, grab onto the Robin Hood and Sir Lancelot and these other long, long um you know, stories that England had been steeped in for centuries. And it was something relatable that the on the ground producers knew as well. Not to mention the fact that there were so many universities nearby that contained Arthurian legend transcripts and Robin Hood legend transcripts. It was, she had a lot of intellectuals on the ground in England who were able to mine these and come up with stories that seemed fresh again, and they were relatable to the Dominion. She was relatable to a British audience, but also Canadian and, and American as well. That's a really good point, I think, that she was a good researcher, too. And that brings me to another question, which is about mm -hmm. the research that you did oh, for this book. Because yeah. um, before I kind of fled to libraries, I was a historian at a, one of the SUNY schools out here. And so I'm always super interested in, um, like, what type of sources people look at when they're writing their histories. Yeah. In particular, I know that um, you said that you had worked on some uh, documents that were declassified uh, okay. for a certain amount of time. So could you talk about those things? Sure. Well, a, a lot of, I'll get to that in a moment, but a lot of the research I did was at my, I'm so lucky to be so close to the Academy of Motion Picture Library, the Margaret Herrick Library. And a lot of the blacklisted writers have papers there. Um, Ian McClellan Hunter and Ring Lardner Jr. to name um, two of six or seven primary ones. But then I discovered all these repositories elsewhere that other blacklisted writers had donated their papers to. And those libraries, I just want to give a shout out to them because they, um, you know, librarians such as yourself, especially during the pandemic, you know, the bulk of my research was done during the pandemic. And once I was able to tell librarians what I was doing, they really went above and beyond to get me materials from their repositories without running afoul of COVID um, rules. And sometimes that meant going in when no one else was there on their days off and scanning things for me. And sometimes they didn't even charge me. It's just they were so excited about this story. And so I really do want to thank all of those unnamed people out there um, if I missed you in my acknowledgments, I'm sorry, but you were, I, I appreciate it. Um, setting those archives aside, um, the FBI gave me her file. It was redacted, but it wasn't, it wasn't terribly hard to piece things together. They gave that to me relatively quickly, like within two weeks. I believe somebody else had mind Hannah's file perhaps a couple of years before I did, and I was very grateful for that. The CIA was a different animal. Um, without going into all the problems I had with my freedom of information request, um, I got a real education in um, making sure that our intelligence agencies hand over to private citizens, what they are legally and 
um, supposed to hand over when asked correctly. It took a long time. It took me the better part of three years. Uh, went through two attorneys. Uh, a shout out to um, my attorney, Dan, who um, really went the extra mile to get me. There wasn't much there, but what was there was very um, illuminating. And I really appreciated the extra mile that he took to get that for me. And it's, you know, it's sort of part and parcel of what is in the book. It's holding government agencies accountable. Absolutely. And that is actually really fascinating to see that the subject of the book can be reflected in how it is written in that way, <laughs> to be affected by the same issues as you are writing the story. Um, could you talk a little bit about um, crafting the book itself? Because I found that it was um, like extraordinarily well-paced. Um, like as somebody who has read a lot of like history, especially on the academic side, that can be like kind of dry and like not have a ton of, you know, structure. You so like, much. oh, you're welcome. And I'm wondering, like, how do you balance um, uh, the, I guess, the needs of readability sure. with like, the needs of history? Like, how do you sure. balance like the comprehensive, the rigor, I guess, with sure, like sure. accessibility? Well, I'll, I'll get the cheat out of the way first. Um <laughs> <laughs> and that and that is that it, this is an unauthorized biography. So I did not have ready access to um, Hannah's thoughts, feelings, and motivations when she was younger. I did not have access to her family's thoughts and feelings um, when she was younger. So you'll notice I went through her childhood and young adulthood at a lightning speed <laughs> and um, got to the meat of the book, which takes place mostly in, in England. And I, I asked myself, what are the themes of this book? If, if I was, um, what, did, what did I want my kids to know? What did I want my people to know about those 12 years she was in Europe? So the, the majority of the book is in Europe. Uh, so I, I chunked it thematically. I chunked it by what may, what political pressures forced Hannah to go overseas in the first place. Then I looked at the production teams that circled around her and produced these TV shows. What were their motivations? What did they get out of it? Then I looked at the press side of it. Uh, I have a journalism background and I thought, you know, what's different between, well, I spent a good deal of my career in television and I remember those press tours and I, I thought, what, what did those TV critics want to know? What did the American television audience want to see? And why did her TV shows fill such an, a niche? And so I was able to chunk it up that way. There's another uh, point of view that I wanted to cover, and that was the British actors in the shows themselves, because television was in its infancy, both in America and in Europe. So what was it about all of these? I guess I should include the writers and the line producers in this as well. What was in it for them? Because in many instances, television was viewed as the sort of cheap stepchild to motion picture films. So what was it about all of these people that were drawn to Hannah's endeavor? And I truly do not think it was all financial. 
I think a lot of them were really intrigued by experimenting in the small screen. I think a lot of them were intrigued about using different ways to produce on a budget. And I think a lot of them were truly intrigued by how to set up these deals with talent for the long run without losing them to the big screen. And so much business affairs, I believe, Hannah really pioneered, not just what you see on the screen, but in the paperwork. And that to me was just fascinating. Um, if I had to do it all over again, I might've gone into business affairs on the entertainment side. Uh, it, it would just, you know, there were new, you know, and how did, how did talent agencies come to the table? I mean, how did talent agents deal with this sudden vacuum of, of great writers not being able to have work and the bravery that some of them, uh, the, you know, some of them were just so brave in deciding that they would go ahead and try to find work for blacklisted writers on the down low. They could have lost their entire careers forever by doing that. And they still did it. So there's a lot of different facets, but I tried to chunk it thematically. I think it speaks in a lot of ways to like interesting things that are going on in Hollywood right now too. Sure. You know? um, oh. Even just in terms of like, it, before you get a, you know into, I guess, um, ideology and how politics like sort of intervene on entertainment. Like, I think we're also seeing a situation right now where like collaboration between artists is becoming super important as they like are approaching, you know, studios and things like that, like during a strike, right. you know? And her life, I think really shows like, um, how important and how um, like transformative like collaborating can be like even in the for the face of like you know like fascism <laughs> like it's really oh, sure sure yeah. sure mm -hmm. I mean look it was I wouldn't call it a happy accident because a lot of my friends are out of work right now but the fact that this is dropping on the shelves right in the thick of this writer's strike is um, it's you know, how many times do we have to do this where a few people on top are making so much money and the creators of programming that we all enjoy are not? And I also want to touch upon something that I didn't go into too much in the book, which is the fact that Hannah Weinstein spearheaded a company that created opportunities for people of color to enter the entertainment industry. This is back in the 1960s and 70s. I mean, she was 30, 40 years ahead, 50 years ahead of her time at any given time. And so I think it really speaks to the fact that labor is always going to have to fight to get its due in this country. And people have to really... Uh, support those who create, or you're going to start seeing some really bad programming. <laughs> um, it, it's all a balance. And, and I truly hope that maybe a few people who are reading this book will see the parallels between today's fight to get fair pay. And that goes for every industry, not just the entertainment industry, as I'm sure you're aware People think that people in the entertainment industry are all living in mansions and earning so much money. That's simply not true. Um, as you see in Hannah's productions in the 1950s, 
It was very collaborative, set designers, costumers, assistants, assistant writers. It takes a village. And I I really hope that people see the parallels. Yeah, absolutely. Well, this has been fascinating. Thank you so much. And, you know, I know it's difficult for writers to talk about what they are working on next sometimes, because sometimes mm-hmm. they're not allowed to say, and sometimes they don't know, but like, well, I'm going to say, I have a, my agent is out there with a proposal for a historical true crime. Mm-hmm. It's gilded age, and much of it takes place in New York. So I am very hopeful that I'll be talking to you again about something that's even closer to you. And I really hope it sells because it is a great true story. Oh, that sounds amazing. That's like right up my alley, like geographically and thematically, like that sounds great. So you are welcome back to talk about that. So thank thank you. you. (laughs) Thank you. No problem. Listeners, Please pick up Red Sapphire. By the time that you hear this, it will be out in the world. So head to your favorite indie bookstore or library, wherever you like to go get your books. Thank you so much for joining us. It is now time to close this chapter. It's time to close this chapter of Turn the Page. Join us for the next episode.